The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. So thank you for joining session with Liam Benson and Julia Robinson to discuss narrative adornment and metamorphosis, unpacking the rich textures and layers within their storytelling, not only connecting the links between their practice, but also their experiences in the year that has been 2020. Rather than introducing Liam and Julia through their bios, the artists will walk us through their practice, showing some images and highlighting their key works. So I'm going to start by thanking Julia and Liam and introducing, inviting Liam to um, kick off the chat. Ah, thank you. Lovely to be here with everyone today. I'm joining you from Baramadigal country, which is part of the Darug nation. And I extend my loving respect to Darug elders of the past and present and all the elders who uh, continue to carry and care for um, culture in the places that we are all existing on. So I'm a, I'm a performance artist, but I also work um, with textiles and community and the um, my practice originally was really focused on unpacking identity and talking about how community, culture, place, family contribute to identity and how all those elements speak to one another, particularly one of the prominent aspects of my identity that I was looking to explore and unpack was my queer identity and particularly how that spoke to and informed uh, who I was um, as, you know, and, and yeah, because I guess it's an ongoing question and something, you know, part of the, part of the queer experience is, um, you know, the questions that we carry throughout our life is, you know, what does it mean? Um, what does it mean for me? Where, where do I fit within my community? Um, yeah. And, that has been an amazing experience and, and I think of it as a skill, uh, as a life skill that I'm able to use to navigate the rest of the, my experience and, um, and also a, a way to connect with people. Um, so this is the Opal Queen, which is a work that I made about the matriarchy of my family, my, my mother and my grandmother um, and my sister. And uh, I was also cross-referencing the, uh, the monarchy, the British monarchy, which my mother and grandmother was Scottish, so culturally um, the Queen played quite an important role in our family. And yeah, so yeah, I, my work is performatively is quite playful, often has a sense of humour to it. And yeah, brings together, I guess, all the different, maybe seemingly unrelated elements together. And yeah, I guess I always like to think of them as a question as well as the beautiful things that, that inform, you know, who we are. I also want to look at, uh, you know, the other power structures that inform identity. And that includes, I guess, the, the system of colonialism that I have grown up in and I live as part of, you know, as a way to question and critique my privilege as a, as a white person and as a white male. And again, you know, I, I think that uh, my queer voice, my queer identity is something that is um, supporting me in navigating that and rethinking that and challenging uh, those power structures. Again, for me, it's very much an ongoing series of questions. Uh, so I've been turning to my materials recently, sequins and beads, which quite frankly, I'm just obsessed with. Uh, and really enjoying the process and the laborious amount of time that I get to spend with these materials and the amount of thinking space that it gives me. And also as a material, you know, sequins are one of the, like using my body, using me can be, can be a confronting thing, especially because I use the gaze in my work and some of my works are deliberately confronting and provocative, whereas sequins, sequins are really unthreatening. Uh, so I found it as a great medium to continue the dialogue and discussion around pertinent political concerns that, that affect us all. Um, and, you know, I've been using it as well, yeah, just to enter into the subjects a little bit more delicately and lightly. And I've been sharing the process too. 
the sequence for me are about thinking, process, celebration, and sharing. Uh, so this is a community-made work uh, titled um, Community Participatory Embroidery, You and Me. And I made it over five years with over 100 people um, with you know, all different experiences, cultural backgrounds and abilities. And we would spend time looking at the language map of First Nation Australia to spend time with it, to think about it, to acknowledge it and its diversity and our connection to this representation of this body of land as well. And whilst sewing and embroidering, it was a lovely space to share stories and connect with one another. Um, yeah. So I took it to schools, art galleries, community spaces, um, existing communities who I visited. Yeah. And I taught people how to, my humble way of sewing beads and sequins and together we pieced that work together. I also did a series of flowers that were about memory and loss and how culturally flowers, uh, are, you know, are quite um, a common uh, symbol and play a, a common role in ceremony and um, memory. I, I, I really, I remember also, I love these mass floral tributes from, you know, when Diana passed away to, you know, I guess terrible things that we experience, terrible, terrible events that, that people pour, pour their, their soul out and reach out to others with a gesture of flowers. So these were all made by many people, again, about 100 people. And this was really nice because a lot of the flowers were never really finished. So somebody else would pick it up and finish it for them. So there was this lovely exchange between people. This is one of the participants and her mum. It was great as well because there's, there's actually no right or wrong way to sew a bead and sequin. And so that was really nice for me as well as a perfectionist because I was taught, I guess, through taking costumes apart, but also taught by my mother who was a maker as well. And so this is the final piece. Uh, so I've been working for the past six years with a community group, um, a collective of artists from here in Western Sydney. Uh, and we all share a love of making. And this collective is called Adorned. And this is from our first series that um, it was a project that I facilitated where I just called out, I said, who loves making things and who wants to, who wants to make wearable art? And this uh, wonderful group of humans came together and we've been working together ever since. Um, so you can see everyone's wearing something that they made that carries a story. And we exhibited these as a series of photographic portraits. The next year, to take it to the next step, we made new wearable pieces and realised that there was a really amazing performative element to it. So we created, uh, well, actually, we performed at a local festival, Paramasala Festival, which is a cultural festival here in Parramatta. And then we also shot a video. So these are some stills of some of the performers wearing their pieces. Um, we made a, um, a film called Wisdom, Memory and Song, uh, which was a way for people to activate their costumes and elaborate on the stories that they were telling through their materials, through their techniques. Um, the group is really culturally diverse and recently um, is incredibly gender diverse as well. So just so happened women were um, responding originally to the, to the call out, um, but now there's um, a really diverse range of genders in the group as well. And so lastly, I've got a little commission to share with you. Uh, last year, I did the Bella Room Commission for the Museum of Contemporary Art. It's an artwork that is tactile and interactive. And I drew on my love of horses and my growing up on Dora country here in a rural part of Sydney also drawing on drag culture and costume to create a series of wearable pieces made of fringe that I thought of as like horses manes and also this room with this giant spectrum mane. And there's also a video of horses in slow motion. And this work turned out to be a really about nonverbal communication and how dance and movement uh, yeah, is a way of, of, of communicating and how tactility is a you know, a really significant language for us as well, and colour. And so one of the um, important key elements that informed this work was thinking about folk, folk art, folk culture, and working with fringe, again, as this common, simple texture that can be used in a variety of ways. 
um, and activated in a really person-centered way. Sometimes it was about touching and sometimes it was about you shaking and being activated by the fringe. And so this artwork is for everyone, but it really uh, tapped into young people, children and families, and also people with varieties of um, physical and mental experiences um, and access requirements as well. And so that work is touring to Orange Regional Gallery soon, where we'll also be working with Writing for Disabled. And that's Cisco at Writing for Disabled here in Box Hill, um, which is also on Dora Country. So I worked with community there um, to really learn about horses and how people and horses communicate together as well through nonverbal communication. Yeah, so that's it for now. Hopefully I'm still... Thank you so much, Lee, and that's yeah, such a rich uh, practice that you have, and I can't wait to have a, a dive into a conversation with you. Um, I'm looking forward to Julia's voice in that conversation as well, so perhaps this is an opportune time to hand over to Julia to also do a screen share and unpack parts of her practice too. Oh, thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Liam, as well. That was fantastic. Yes, I'm I'm also um, presenting like Debbie and Guildhouse um, today in Adelaide on Ghana land, so I'd like to extend my respects as well. And I've just, like Liam, put together a series of uh, images to give some context for today's talk. And I focused primarily on uh, just a few works over the last five years, just the last uh, recent five years that have particularly addressed uh, notions of adornment and um, have kind of talked a little bit to the way that I engage with kind of bodies or body parts. Um, and these works that for me speak in my broader practice to my ongoing engagement and fascination with um, rituals or ceremonies that are related to the cycle of the seasons, uh, life and death cycles and symbols of fertility and metamorphosis. So I chose these particular works because um, even though they're very fairly recent, these are from 2015, um, these were the first pieces where I really started to bring the idea of costuming adornment really uh, loudly into my practice, even though I've been sewing in my practice for 20 years since my honours year, I hadn't really engaged with costume per se, I'd been just sort of working with textiles in various other ways. And really 20 years ago when I started sewing in my practice, uh, my sewing as a hobby just stopped, you know, I stopped making clothes for myself and I never really showed much more interest in that and it all became about how it was integrated into my studio practice. So, so these recent works are the first time I really started to engage with sort of notions of adornment and um, this idea of sort of ritual and folklore. And um, these particular, these yellow silk works were the first colour, that the first sort of a pops of colour that had been in my practice for about 15 years, um, where I really sort of wrenched it into this kind of colour palette and started to refer more overtly to ceremonial costume traditions and evoking ritual through the garment itself or sort of suggesting narratives through the, the ritual garments of my own kind of devising those. So they're sort of based on real things, but come sort of coming through my own lens, which is how I process, how I process things in the world. And then there's a series of works that followed those yellow ones where I brought into play uh, the gourd. Um, there's a couple of gourds hanging in the background there. Um, and I particularly sort of latched onto this, this strange uh, fruit, um, uh, partly because it's, it has a, it's a symbol that resonates with fertility and procreation, the phallus, good fortune um, and it sort of was a way for me to engage with a, a bawdy sense of humour in my practice but also to talk about more serious things to, to me like entering into dialogues around sort of my concerns around well as in like my human concerns around sex and death and life and death and fertility and what that sort of means to think about growth and decay as, as part of um, part of the natural cycle of things and how we navigate that as humans but particularly how we navigate that through through ritual and ceremony, which is my really my real kind of area of interest. So again, with these, the um, the idea of costuming was sort of a signifier of ceremony or importance, and it was me bringing a sense of sort of decadence and kind of self conscious pompousness to the work by sort of overtly adorning the gourd and you know overtly sort of celebrating in these works the phallic properties, but also celebrating um, the vegetal or new life from decay and, and metamorphosis. And at this time as well, I particularly introduced these Elizabethan costume techniques, which is one of my favourite eras of costuming. So introducing this technique called smocking, which is this really laborious, hugely um, materially consumptive technique of hand sewing. And that's what this sort of, that detail there shows the kind of honeycomb smocking. 
And it became this kind of luxurious signifier as well, this sort of language of excess and adornment that overemphasizes parts of the body or, but also, you know, I love the way that costuming in particular, uh, the Elizabethan era is sort of, it's kind of, it's full of sexual signifiers as well and kind of bodily signifiers. It's, you know, orifices and linings and undergarments and shirts and skirts and sleeves kind of opening out and revealing kind of interiors. Um, and I really like that kind of play off of it just being, yeah, being kind of fabric and wearable, but also kind of bodily at the same time. And following on from the gourd bodies of work, I was in this show in um, the MCA in the National uh, in 2019, and uh, I'd been fastidiously kind of staring at the uh, Hieronymus Bosch Garden of Earthly Delights painting and thinking I wanted to make a work that felt like the way that painting felt to me, sort of rich with diversity and metamorphosis and kind of um, kind of these rich fruity sort of textures and I eventually landed on the fact that I would derive the kind of components that I was making from the actual composition of the of the the um, image so these kind of strange fruit-like spiky forms kind of grew out of that painting and became these uh these more sort of physical uh forms that to me speak again to extravagant ritual or sort of fruits that are bursting apart the idea of metamorphosis and bringing into into place a, a language of um kind of flesh pinks and bruised blues and a kind of palette that sort of talks to inside seeping out or skins breaking down or opening up. And and this, this for me, I sort of noted when Liam talked about his perfectionism, this for me, um, leaving a raw edge or like cutting into material is like such an anomaly. It's like a real wrench for me to handle that. It's, I really wanted to do that. I really wanted to try something new. But these, these cut edges are and these seams showing are really, uh, they took a lot, for me to, to go there in the work and I really wanted to, to sort of try that but the idea of these kind of things opening up and then I just jumped to the last few slides here of, of my most recent work because that's sort of the last thing I've really made for a while uh of Beatrice which was shown at Monster Theatres and you know Beatrice really is this kind of uh conflation of a lot of things all, all those things I've been thinking about for a while it sort of feels like a uh, a resolution of sorts of, of a number of those concerns um but she is this kind of crazy hybrid creature um, derived partly from, you know, Lee Robb's curatorial premise of the monster, but also from my engagement with the Museum of Economic Botany and thinking about this text that I read called Rappuccini's Daughter about a toxic plant woman who lives in this contain contained in this garden and she's she can't touch anything without it decaying. But um, I wanted this sort of strange, monstrous form with a kind of, I guess, a kind of tight skin that's sort of intended to, to hover between the idea of growths or cuts or splices or mutations and um, this sort of, for me, this like this beautiful creature, even though she sort of could be categorised as a kind of classical monster or sort of derived from that, she's this sort of beautiful thing that's kind of moving and growing and, and changing all the time and, yeah, sort of wanted to bring all those kind of concerns together in this work and a lot of techniques that I've been working on for a few years were kind of, um, yeah, brought to a resolution in this work and sort of found found a particular form that I'm now sort of moving into other things. So yeah, that's that's my slideshow and my um, touch on that. So thank you so much. Thank you. Um, so incredible to see both of your works and to to have your voice as you're presenting them. It's really lovely to hear some more insights behind them. There's so many shared approaches between the both of your practices from costuming to storytelling to labour, so much labour, to folk. And I'm trying to figure where we, we start with this. <laughs> but mainly I'd, I'd love to start with folk because when we spoke last week, um, we had a little revelation where we revealed that Julia had re-found a connection to folk dancing and that had a really lovely connection to Liam. But there's so many, um, you know, there's so much texture and colour and storytelling within folk. And I wonder, Julia, if you can tell us if that was a starting point for you in your practice, do you think? Yeah, it actually, I've always processed things through um, through the lens of folklore and storytelling. I've I've never considered myself a, a writing storyteller. I'm, I'm not a particularly good writer in, in that sort of creative sense. Um, so I've always thought about my sculptural practice as being my form of storytelling and and deriving from just like my whole life of reading fairy tales and folk, folk tales. And, and I love looking for the, the connections across different cultures where you find those kind of moments that exist in different kind of parts of the world. And there's this sort of lovely shared sort of shared stories or shared narrative devices and or shared rituals and ceremonies as well you sort of see the same things recurring around but uh, it's just always my go-to thing it's always to process 
how, you know, how I process the world through this language of folklore and storytelling. And I just, I'm sort of an avid sort of voracious reader of folk tales from everywhere and, and finding really sort of nuanced stories and really, really getting into that. And now the folk dancing is sort of feels like an extension of that really because so many of the folk dances that I do from sort of Eastern Eastern European area is they all have these stories attached to them. And I just love when I'm being taught these new dances, I love hearing about the way that they relate to stories. And I can see that as being an extension of my practice as well. And Liam? Uh, yeah, I think the thing that I love the most about folk uh, culture and folk stories, folk art, folk dancing is that, well, there it, there leaves space for different versions and um, particularly with folk stories. I love, I love how, you know, sometimes there are like darker versions or, you know, culturally specific versions or, you know, it might, or it might be, that, that might be affected by um, place or location or um, community. And, yeah, it's coming. It's come into my work as a focus, and I'm talking about it thanks to the Bella Room. But it too, I realised, had been a big part of my growing up as well. Because being my mother being Scottish, uh, you know, I realised that my a lot of my cultural identity came from her and from from my grandmother and my grandfather. That my dad contributed to it as well. He was uh, <laughs> as a Queenslander, but um, you know he kind of adopted uh, Scottish culture as well, and you know had his Highland Highland gear. But yeah, like we were got a Scot- Scottish balls growing up, and I played in the pipe band. I, I was a side drummer, but I, you know I just the most amazing memories of dancing "Strip the Willow" with my family. <laughs> it makes me emotional talking about it, but it's a good emotional yeah. And I like I remember the way that my grandfather and my grandmother danced that, you know, and they were, you know, little beautiful elderly people, but my grandfather would practically be, you know, picking my grandmother up off the floor as they spun around and uh, whooping. And yeah, just, yeah, it's really, it's really exciting when you, when you get people together in a notion of celebration and sharing. And yeah, I guess that's something that, yeah, I'm really looking to tap into in my work and find uh, other ways to expand on that. Um, yeah, because I, you know, in unpacking identity and, uh, you know, we li- and we live in this world today where where we're very we're very focused in on ourselves, you know, thanks to the internet and our, you know, media and phones and and I, uh, you know, and I think politically as well, there's there's so much um, division and there's there's a lot to unpack and 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 that needs to be done in the right way, but also at the same time, I think it's really important to come together and to share and to listen to other people's versions of a story and see, you know, how do you move? How do you dance? And, you know, what did you learn from, what did you learn from your parents and grandparents and that you still choose to carry today and that inform who you are in a really, uh, in a myriad of ways and subtle ways and really forward thinking ways. And, and, And also ultimately, how is it informing the way that you interact with and process the world? I think that's that's something that's really interesting um, with folk culture too. Thank you, Liam. I feel like, Julia, that's something that you might see within your practice as well, being that you've recently returned to folk dancing and you've reconnected with the whole community. And particularly this year, I think there's quite an action to community as a form of resilience and community might not be prevalent in your everyday practice in the same way that it might be for Liam but I feel like there's a broader community that really is to play with with you as well Julia. Yeah that's true and and you know with this unusual year we've experienced um uh the the art community has been so so important to me but but you're right in in the sense that the way that I um you know I consider myself an incredibly sort of solitary studio focused um artist in the sense that I I really do go to you know a studio on my own every day and um, I'm in a group studio but we we sort of keep to ourselves and um we sort of respect each other's working sort of patterns and ethics so um I do process the world a lot through on my own through these kind of vicarious um interactions with community so through through literally just through the research that I do into into rituals and community you know community ceremonies and particularly European and, and British ones which is which also reflects my um, my cultural background my parents were both British so um, I, I have this kind of uh, this innate pull towards those those particular kind of regions for for ceremonies and rituals although I do sort of look broadly as well 
Um, but yeah, this this return to folk dancing um, that I started, you know, when I was a kid, and 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 the group disbanded 20 years ago, and I've rejoined. Um, and it's the same group, so some of the people are still there that I know, including uh, one of the, uh, Marina, who is a friend of Liam's from the endowment group. So, yeah, this this kind of reconnecting with that has been really interesting for me because it is probably the most community kind of engaged uh, activity I do. And I see this really interesting relationship to my practice that I haven't yet formed a way to kind of activate in, in the practice just yet. But I know it has great potential in there. But I was saying to you, as you know, last week that it's what I really love about it is this this might be the only time in my life pre-COVID that I would get together with, you know, 20 adults and we would all hold, hold hands in a room. And that that feeling I get when I'm dancing and everyone's, you know, I'm focused on my the steps, but I can sense the whole room moving in the same way. And I can feel the feet around me moving and this sort of embodied knowledge that we have together. I just it activates something in me that uh, I think had been um, lost or dormant for so long. And it, it so energizes me. And it's, it's a really nice counterpoint to my very solitary studio life that I still really love and really get energy from. But, you know, once a week when I do the folk dancing, I get this different form of energy that, that feeds into my practice um, notionally. So, yeah. And Liam, how has community um, worked for you this year in isolation? How have you been able to connect with people and and continue your your practice which seems so collaborative in so many ways it's been great because we have all realized uh the potential for uh increasing our access um and reaching out to people and working online Mm -hmm. and for a while there um as much as that's been great we know we're all also really missing each other um when social restrictions were at their tightest but that's okay you know because we all had more time to sit at home and make the things that we that we that are piling up all of our projects um but i don't know actually when the restrictions lifted we 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 quickly went back to kind of feeling normal and i i'm cautious about how i say that because i know that other people in the country have had very different experiences and i've experienced terrible isolation and um but um there was just a real sense of enthusiasm to get back in and luckily you know i have this space here which is supported by Parramatta council as part of the Parramatta artist studios and so one of the things that um was my main focus in having a studio was to be able to share that with local community and you know i love i love being here on my own and you know julie and i both we need a lot of time with our work but uh it just in the same way that Julie's talking about getting together and holding hands with people and moving around a room in a space, I need that same thing as well, uh, you know, once a week or once a fortnight for just people to fill this room and for all my materials to, for people to look at them and talk about them and use them and share them. Uh, and, and, you know, just for all of us, it brings the things that we work with a new and deeper significance because when you're on your own, you love the materials that you work with, but sometimes you might overlook something or you only looking at that material or that process in one way. And then you get talking to somebody else and they will highlight something about it that you hadn't noticed. Or I guess, you know, the sharing of techniques um, is so essential because uh, it's really hard actually to make yourself try new things with materials on your own, you've really got to sit yourself down and force yourself to do it. But when you're with a group of people, it's lovely how it happens over time, um, in subtle ways and as uh, in also and also facilitated ways. So I guess that's the biggest value of sharing space and yeah, making a community uh, moment of sharing. Mm. Mm. Both of you really share such strong um, narrative storytelling within your works, and I'm wondering how you came to develop that. I think that's the um, such a pivotal thing for an artist and the most difficult thing to do. How did you come to have confidence within your narrative and find that direction? Was there a connection to folk, do you think, that helped foster that because you were so used to being around storytelling, or was there a particular um, mentor that, that helped you define uh to both of you and you're on mute Liam yeah um Julie do you do you you want to chat first about that um yeah I I think it's I feel like it's just always been in me in a way I think I I think just I just was really lucky I was I grew up with a lot of books around me and a lot of storytelling and 
um, my parents were really, really engaged with that and wanted me to be really engaged with that. So um, it just, it took hold very early on and then I just sort of fostered it myself. Um, I can't really think of a particular person who sort of particularly inspired it, but um, I guess because I said before, you know, I don't see myself as a particularly accomplished creative writer. I uh, I look to materials as the kind of words that I that I work with, and I, and the kind of the textures and the qualities that come out of that. I feel like that's my sort of um, that's my kind of raft of storytelling kind of cues and skills. And I I just I gravitate towards objects. I'm very tactile. I you know I sort of thought for a little while when I was at art school I might have been a painter, which was sort of a just an idea I had, but um, I quickly realised that I was actually a sculptor. And, I, and when I look back now, the things I made as a kid. I was clearly going to be a sculptor because I was always making things. I wasn't really a drawer as much as a, as I was a maker. So mm-hmm. I think in terms of that that fusion of storytelling um, or that, that fusion of kind of reading stories and wanting to tell stories myself but looking for the way that I can do it and the way that feels most comfortable for me is, is through these tactile materials and bringing those things together as the narratives. I'm not sure if that answered the question, but it's no, it a piece of the puzzle, I guess. But, um, yeah. Learned through material, talking through material. Yeah, that's my sort of, that's how I communicate, I think, um, and how I, I feel most comfortable is touching things and moving them around and manipulating them. And that's, yeah, those, those become my sort of paragraphs and my sentences, if you want to draw an, an analog to that. Yeah, totally. There's such an amazing, powerful language within the, yeah, what we work with and how we use them. Um, I really feel that too. And for me, I think the defining moment was when uh, or era it was like age 17, 18, starting to go into the city and go to, um, uh, you know, gay and lesbian nightclubs and spaces and venues. And, you know, because before then I was living in a rural part of Sydney in a really, con- um, in, in kind of the Bible Belt of Sydney and um, very conservative, very monoculture. And, and then couple of nights a week starting to go out with friends, sneak out to the city and go to drag bars and see drag shows and realizing the um I guess I guess I think of I think of queer culture is 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 like a really vibrant example of what folk culture and folk art and folk dance and folk costume can be because it's all made up and tells the story of now as well as being connected to uh a shared history and a shared lineage and a shared narrative that's from your chosen family and um, from from community and that was really important to me because for so long I was completely detached and you know I guess knowing you're queer but running around the bush with a couple of German shepherds on your own you're like well what is it am I queer now here sitting on a big rock of sandstone with my two dogs like or do I have to be in the city wearing particular clothing and and um and going to nightclubs and uh you know like in a relationship um and then I guess yeah realizing through experiencing the same drag shows every Thursday night every Saturday night or whatever um that these were these rich expressions of um you know and there were and like tapping into pop culture as well and, you know, miming songs and using songs to tell a story, um, you know, by Britney Spears or Cher or something like that and realising that we, we're, all, we're all shared um, something through these songs um, but could also be, I guess, interpreted in your own way. And I'm still really excited by that night. And, I, and, then, and then that's the thing that I want to, that's the thing that I've always wanted to communicate in my work. Um, is that all of this is all made up, like, especially here in Australia, where we're, you know, unless you're a First Nation, you have a, you have a, a part of your story is, is how you've come here and how your family and you have changed by being here. Uh, and it's something that I'm looking to continue to celebrate. And I guess this is why I ended up working with community, because I realised I just couldn't say this on my own, like that it had to be uh, a shared process. Um, and I don't want to tell anyone else like that, you know, like everyone, everyone, I think is it's really important to be in control of your own narrative. Um, I guess that's the thing. And so I don't want to tell anyone how to draw from or, or, um, you know, I guess carry the, that narrative, but just hopefully always planting a seed and letting people know that, um, it's alive and it's a, and, and, you know, culture, it's a living thing and you and your identity and 
um, your relationship to your community is alive and is yours to add to in your own way anytime. Thank you so much. There's so much joy in your your practice, Liam. And I feel like that comes through community and it's your viewpoint, but it's also who the stories you're choosing to tell or how you're choosing to tell them. Thank you. Um, I'm going to take a question and also remind Liam and Julia that you're welcome to ask each other questions if you have any questions that you'd like. Um, but before then, I'll go to Belinda Hoden, who asks a question for Liam. Your work is always so wonderfully optimistic and hopeful despite facing at times difficult cultural issues. What tools do you use to keep the spaces and conversations open when working with a broad range of people from different life experiences to your own? Great yeah, thank you, Belinda. Lovely to have you here joining with us today. Um, yeah, it is it is really tough, and I think about it every day, all the time. And I I guess one of the things recently this year that I've really come to terms with is um, being open to uh, change and potentially making um, well, kind of mistakes, but just knowing that I'll, I'll actually let's do that a little bit differently. So always uh, staying in a state of, um, yeah, moving forward with uh, uh, with permission and with um, informing yourself as much as you can, but also knowing that you're going to be updating that um, foundation that you're that you're making those decisions on now and working um, and sharing space culturally. It's, uh, you know, I think especially being a white male as well, it's something I try and keep my finger on, but it's also hard for me to see. So... Uh, you know, I do what I can. I listen to as many First Nation voices as I can, as many artists and writers and activists uh, from different cultural experiences to me uh, to check in on my privilege and make sure that I am consistently, con um, constructively engaged with that. Um, and I guess the recently as well with Adorned, um, I'm taking steps back from being a facilitator and for it being, it's, it is now an artist collective. And so I guess I'm growing as an educator. So Adorned five years ago or six years ago when it started was um, Liam, the new educator facilitating that program. And now it's very much participant led. So I have a space, I share it. I, you know, we come here and hang out with the materials, but everything else has been the group's decision. And my role has been to just support each of those decisions. Um, mm, so those are some of the um, key values that I've been building on and trying to bring into our practice. Mm. Thank you. I have another question for you, Liam. <laughs> How do your textile costume works influence you in live performance work? Do, you, do they influence particular characters or highlight particular facets of your self? Mm, yeah, the, yeah, well, I've only got one consistent drag character that I've been playing, and that's Taki Motel. And uh, Taki is part of the Motel sisters, so her sister, Paris Motel, um, who is played by the wonderful artist Naomi Oliver. Um, and Taki's clothes are a combination of uh, off-the-rack, supre, um, you know, what young uh, young people are wearing, uh, you know, um, and, 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 and also her style is very much part showgirl, part, um, you know, active wear, like mum, um, sitting, sipping a latte after Pilates and so you know and I think for her and because she's a drag she's a drag queen she's not female identifying you know and so I think when when I play Taki it's really about making fun of um, of our notions around gender and, and, and how gender uh, is, is constructed particularly in our western world and within the sort of sphere of consumerism and how we all respond to pop culture but then for me, as Liam, the things that I make for myself, the things that I bead and that I would wear are connected to uh, that experience of going and spending time with queer community and thinking about, well, if I was going to make something for myself, you know, what, what am I going to make? And always a notion of celebration, mm -hmm. um, that those materials have been used as a way to face adversity and to, you know, you know, I love how the queer community has had so much adversity and actively, culturally, a lot of, you know, when queer people get together, it's about saying we're really beautiful, we're fabulous, you know, we're all about 
you know, love is at the core of who we are. Um, yeah, so those things that I make for myself always, um, I want to contribute to that and continue um, highlighting um, the significance of, um, you know, of those materials and how people are using them. Because I always say, like, one of the reasons I use sequins is because, you know, um, a lot of people have had to gather in the dark at nighttime and hide in the shadows. And if you're going to do that, you know, you might as well wear something that reflects the light. Uh, so, yeah, so that's um, so that's always one of the reasons why I'm always using sequins as well. Fabulous, thank you. <laughs> do you have any questions for each other? Yeah, I'm really keen to know about folk culture that you're tapping into um, and, and what what you're finding out about the, how you're connecting to the costume and the um, fabrics and mm -hmm. and yeah have you have you have you been dressed up in costume yet? Um, I haven't actually in fact it's it is this sort of weird thing of sort of different cycles my life's been through because as a kid I was again like a really avid kind of dress up player and um, you know sort of fantasy playing all that sort of stuff and then um, I you know, as I said, I started when I was about five and, and my mum taught me and she would she was making costumes for all of the, she was like a um, costume lady for the, the schools that she worked in and so I would then help her do that. So I've made a lot of costumes in my life and I think then I kind of popped out the other end feeling like I love these things as objects but I don't want to wear them anymore. I don't want to kind of put them on myself and I, and I sort of have a I think a kind of a, an inherent shyness about myself being in my practice and, you know, the, the kind of obvious thing would be to, to think about what these costumes look like to, to sort of wear and to perform in. But it's, I'm just sort of really fascinated by what happens when I take myself out of that and I, and I let the objects do the work for me or I let the sort of the sculptural kind of uh, elements kind of perform for me or, um, uh, yeah, be, become the kind of, become the narrative themselves. So, yeah, so costume has sort of been this sort of, just again like a passion that kind of comes through it in terms of the dancing um uh I mean I just get way too sweaty to to wear something nice in there it's just like it's really quite energetic a lot of this dancing and um I often come home like red as a beetroot and feeling totally like you know energized but also really exhausted but you know I have over the years um looked at a lot of uh, folk costumes and and the different kind of ways that they are constructed and the amazing sort of fabrics that go into them and they're just luscious and I just they sort of feast for my eyes but because I guess I in my practice I draw from so many different um I look across cultures at, at, at all the different kind of collective you know connective rituals and ceremonies I'm always really conscious that I don't just mimic those things or I don't just kind of um you know wantonly take from them it's always for me I consider it a kind of I call it a kind of remote translation whereby a lot of the things I'm really interested in the, the particularly the British rituals and ceremonies I've never participated in them I've only ever vicariously experienced them through watching YouTube or, or for, through research so I like the fact that I do have that remoteness from them I'm sort of really engage with them but I, I kind of like that I have to translate it from afar through my own voice and through my own lens and I like there's that kind of filter in the in the middle that um, I don't want to just replicate or just kind of copy things I don't have the sort of right to do that so I like to think well this is how I feel about it from where I am in, in my position in the world and um, this is how I want to sort of translate it through my voice and through my lens but I think that you know I have a um, it's it's folklore and it's folk ritual so you know I'm I'm a folk I can engage in that in my own way and I was interesting when, when you were talking before about um the I guess what I consider the kind of currency of of um folk connection and community connection you know that, that sometimes when I'm researching these folk traditions I look at how um some some there are factions out there that want to keep the sort of historical aspects of folk traditions really tied and other people who argue that that just becomes historical reenactment instead of an active living thing and I really think that I I fall into that thing of thinking yeah it should be a living pulsating thing because it's enacted by people constantly it originally was why can't it be now and why can't it sort of change to to meet the needs of, of kind of current communities and I think that currency is really important and I feel like that's sort of something that you were as well touching on in that how how we can engage with it now is is not for it to be like a a stagnant stale thing that you just 
you learn about and then you know about, but it's something that you evolve and grow and, and share. And, and naturally it's going to grow with other people having input and investment in it. So I don't know, maybe you want to talk to that a bit as well. Oh yeah. Well, I'm just thinking about the dancing that you're talking about. Cause of course, maybe those dances were uh, mostly done in cool climate countries and cool climate places. And yeah, like everyone would have been wearing heavy clothing and it would have been fine. But what does it mean now that we're dancing those here and in summer, you know, what are we, what are we wearing? You know, and it's, is it a t-shirt and a singlet? And if so, hey, that's great. That's yeah. now, that's now how it's evolving. Like my dad's kilt is really lightweight. And I tried to, when I got mine, I tried to get the same weight in woolen tartan fabric and it's hard to get because um, I just don't think the kilt market is really thinking about Australians wearing kilts. But, you know, so I don't know, maybe, you know, actually what I'd really love is I'd love um, a kilt in a nice light cotton. But the problem is, you know, the weight of the fabric yeah. is so important and the swish of the pleats changes when, so I don't know, somebody's going to have to work on some innovative way of it being light and breathable but still have the same weight i think i think you want some curtain weights in the bottom of the cotton great idea that would work perfectly yeah yeah i once heard like on the red carpet um people sewing butter knives to the bottoms of their dresses so that it sat properly so you just gotta make it work right yeah improvise problem solving yeah Yeah, that's so cool love it what are you both working on now what have you got coming up cool i'll just take you to i'm i'm my thought is mapping the unmeasurable so i'm I'm looking at ways of capturing emotions memory shared experiences sensory experiences in relation to place people culture and just um so this is a an embroidery work that i'm working on at the moment Mm. um Yeah, and when I was doing, you know, with my photography work and um, performative, I would always really, I would conceive the idea and then I would execute it. And so working with my materials at the moment is really organic and process-driven. And so I'm just leaning into that as best I can. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so that's what I'm working on. Do you have a show planned, Liam, or is that how you work, based on a deadline or a a booked-in showing, or do you work as soon as the ideas come to you? Usually, usually, and I need it because I'm such a terrible procrastinator. <laughs> but my wonderful gallery that I'm represented by here, Arterial, that they've said for me the next one, you have to, we're just going to give you space and make before, and then when you have a collection, then we'll put on a show because um, I stress them out with um, trying to finish things in time. I haven't, uh, yeah, I've got a potential solo show coming up next year. But again, I'm actually saying no to things and stepping back and saying, oh, I need more time. Um, well, especially the medium that you work in is so labour intensive. Mm. And I think that's kind of an unspoken element within textiles in particular. And in, especially um, using embroidery, it's so time consuming. So how do you how do you map that time out when, you, when, when you're looking at a deadline? It's got to be, it's, look, oh gosh, I was just forcing myself to sit down and clock hours. And I don't know about you, Julia, or any other makers who are here with us today, but I maybe only do like two or three hours at a time and then I have to get up and move around because it's my back. It's like you're hunched over. And also, like, you just get into this vortex. Like, you might be listening to podcasts or or music or whatever, but you can end up really, like, with your blinkers on. And so you just got to get outside into the world. This summer, yeah, I'm going to just fill up my Audible account with great new books and... Not not say I'm going to go sit down and do embroidery. I'm just going to say, oh, I'm just going to sit down and arrange my materials whilst I listen to this new audiobook <laughs> and see what happens. Yeah, so taking the pressure off and not, yeah, and just seeing what happens when I do that, when I'm not working to a deadline. That sounds really good. How about you, Julia? Yeah, it's it's... Uh, it's been h- harder to kind of get back into the rhythm um, following the um, the demands of online teaching for a few months, you know, earlier in the year. Um, obviously, I'm, we're back out back there now. But, um, yeah, that sort of weird thing of, like, as I said about Beatrice and the biennial, it sort of felt like the 
um, the resolution of a lot of things I've been thinking about. So I was kind of hungry and ready for like a new perspective and new kind of body of work. And then that, you know, that kind of coincided with the arrival of the pandemic and um, it sort of made that a little bit harder to kind of process new things for me. So I have, I have been sort of, you know, just re getting back into my daily studio um, practice, which is sort of, you know, between four and five days a week in the studio. And perhaps not surprisingly, you know, the things that I think about normally in my practice around cycles of seasons and around um, uh, growth and decay and, and life and death, I, I guess I've been thinking a lot more about how we can't predict those things anymore and, and the kind of, um, yeah, the the problems we have with sort of I, you know, I guess when we think, when I think about the rituals I'm most engaged with, they're about encouraging the transitions of time. You know, we look to the new year, we look to kind of, in the old days, we'd look to harvest or, you know, we would sort of, we'd kind of have these, these counters, these sort of ticking over things that we would kind of respond to and that we would um, try to encourage a new, a new season or a good, a good winter or a good summer, that sort of thing. And um, I sort of looking at the moment, thinking about how these things are interrupted and how they're not kind of uh, as reliable as we think they are or um, that we can't kind of plan ahead so much even though we kind of crave that so yeah I'm sort of thinking about uncertainty at the moment a lot and um, yeah sort of trying to process that in my own practice as well so I do have a show coming up it's quite late next year but um, like Liam you know I, I have a laborious practice and so I have sort of measures in my head of like how long a technique will take and how much of it my body can take per day um, before I, yeah, before I hurt my back too much for the next week ahead. So, um, yeah, sort of trying to manage all those different kind of making, um, making kind of zones so that I don't do it, accidentally do an eight hour day of smocking and then realize that I can't move for another day. So yeah, mm -hmm. just building in my own cycles within the bigger cycles and hoping that they kind of sync up where they can and, and then being reflexive and responsive to when they don't and, um, which we're all learning to do at the moment so yeah thank you so much so beautifully informative and you've both been so generous and vulnerable so I thank you so much for your time and your experiences today thank you Debbie and thank you Liam it's been wonderful talking to you same Julia it's great and thank you Debbie for yeah. facilitating um, this uh, experience for everyone uh, today it's been lovely so thanks again to everyone thank you Julia Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.